Last week, we considered the ways that Israel's missing the Messiah had, according to Paul, beautifully opened the door to us Gentiles and also showed the glories of what might be possible should they actually come to believe. And we talked about Paul's spiritual eyes and his spiritual vision for people. And we talked about how we really want that ourselves too. So that's where we've been in the opening half of Romans chapter 11. Let's jump right back in. We're going to start in verse 17. But if some of the branches of the tree have been broken off, while you, like shoots of wild olive, have been grafted in and share like a natural branch the rich nourishment of the root, don't let yourself feel superior to those former branches. If you feel inclined that way, remind yourself that you do not support the root, the root supports you. You may make the natural retort, but the branches were broken off to make room for my grafting. It wasn't quite like that. They lost their position because they failed to believe. You only maintain yours because you do believe. The situation does not call for conceit, but for a certain wholesome fear. If God removed the natural branches for a good reason, take care that you don't give him the same reason for removing you. You must try to appreciate both the kindness and the strict justice of God. Those who fell experienced his justice, while you are experiencing his kindness and will continue to do so as long as you do not abuse that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off from the tree. And as for the fallen branches, unless they are obstinate in their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. Such a restoration is by no means beyond the power of God. And in any case, if you who were, so to speak, cuttings from a wild olive were grafted in, is it not a far simpler matter for the natural branches to be grafted back into the parent stem? Now, I have always enjoyed, I'm sure you do too, uh, the humor of a mixed metaphor. But I'll tell you, I really, truly enjoy when two, or even three or four in this case, good metaphors get mixed. I'll explain what I mean in a second. You'll kind of see. Let's imagine here the literal thing Paul wants us to be picturing metaphorically. And then I want us to picture something that Jesus talks about, then another one from Paul, and then we'll do one final one from the book of Revelation. So I need you to get very literalistic here, then we'll get more metaphorical, and then we'll wrap it all up together in this glorious four-part mixed metaphor. So there's a tree, and let's call it the tree of life, shall we? Now, if you and I were having coffee or something right now, I would say to you, hey, hey, what are those things sticking out from that tree's trunk? And you would say, branches. And I might say, how about those uh, strong, stretching out anchor points that are heading out underneath it? And you would say very knowingly, roots. And I would say, what we are told are those different branches, those, those ones of a different color and leaf, those ones that are mixed up there within the native branches. And you would say, well, those are the grafted branches. And then I would say, well, how about those sticks lying there on the ground around the tree? They're unattached. According to Paul's metaphor, what caused those disconnected ones uh, to fall down there? And you, having listened so carefully, would say, well, I guess lack of belief. So who 
are the branches, the natural ones? Well, those are the Israelites. What are the roots? Jesus himself. And who are those grafted branches? And you would say, of course, us, these Gentile believers. And I would ask again, hey, well, then what creates attachment to the tree of life? And you would say, oh, belief. Well, that's where we've been here in verses 17 through 24. But I want to flip over really quickly, and some of you are going to smile knowingly as I say this. Let's flip to one of my favorite teachings of Jesus ever, John 15, 1 through 8. Listen, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. All right, friends. Well, here we have yet another image from the natural world. So let's get back to our little uh, question and answer. Because first, Jesus has given us a main garden life form. So what's this first thing that he's describing? A vine. And there's somebody tending that vine, right? So who's tending it? And who literally is that tender? Well, it's a vine dresser. And if you were listening, it's the Father, our Heavenly Father. And what are those things that are sticking out from the vine? You heard it. Branches. And by the way, what are the two clear purposes for which those branches exist? Were you listening? To abide and to bear fruit. And let's be a little inferential here. Can a branch bear fruit that is not currently abiding and thus unfruitful and in fact has been removed from the vine? And you might say, eh, not so much. So friends, who is the vine? Jesus. Who is the vine dresser? The Father. And who are the branches? Well, you and me. And what is abiding? I would say union with Jesus. And what are the fruits? Well, they're the natural fruits of the Spirit. Okay, got it. Well, let's go ahead and mix up our metaphors a little bit more. We're going to go to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Again, back to Paul. Listen. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on living in him in simple faith grow out of him as a plant grows out of the soil it is planted in, becoming more and more sure of the faith as you were taught it, and your lives will overflow with joy and thankfulness. So here again, we've got another naturalistic picture. So my question for you, if we were sitting together, is this, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's that green thing sticking up out of the ground? And you would say, uh, a plant. And actually, for that matter, what's that ground called that it's sprouting out of? And you might say, golly, Eugene, soil. So who is the plant? 
Well, us. And who are we just being told is the soil? Jesus himself. Well, you know, I'm loving this every minute of it. So let's go ahead and just super mix the metaphor now. We're going to be in Revelation 22, the last chapter in the scriptures. Listen, this is one and through three. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal as it flowed from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street of the city and on either bank of the river grew the tree of life, bearing 12 fruits, a different kind for each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Nothing that has cursed mankind shall exist any longer. And I got to say, isn't that just a beautiful picture? And tell me, what's that, uh, see it over there, that liquidy thing flowing along from the throne of God and of the Lamb? Well, you heard it. It's the river of life. And what's that enormous, fruitful, branchy thing that seems to be spreading out everywhere? The tree of life. And what's hanging from it? 12 months a year. Fruit. And even its leaves, what are they doing? Well, they're healing the nations. So friends, what is the river of life? The Holy Spirit. And what is this tree of life? Well, it's the kingdom of God. And what are that kingdom's fruits? Well, they're the fruits of the Spirit again. And what is that healing? Well, it's the kingdom way. So having belabored this point far too long, if you will allow me, I would just love to tie together for our understanding all four parts of the mixing up of these metaphors. So here we go. Let's start at the bottom and let's head our way up. Friends, the soil is Jesus. The irrigation is the Holy Spirit. The roots that hold all this together are actually Jesus himself. The tree, the vine, are the kingdom of God and its King Jesus. Its leaves are healing. Its fruit Well, that's the fruit of the Spirit, and it is perfectly tended to by a perfect gardener, our Heavenly Father. And after all that comes finally these unexpected, really non-natural parts, these grafted branches, us. And we are called to do simply what? Believe, abide, and bear fruit in all seasons. Fruit, again, that is his fruit, uh, abiding that is simply sharing his life and believing in this most wonderful, uh, overwhelmingly delightful, loving, lovely one who has ever lived upon the face of the earth. Do you see how little part we play in this whole arrangement and how absolutely enormously he plays every single part that matters? Friends, I am starting to feel like we can actually do this. What do you think? Can we do it? All right, I'm going to continue to read on, starting in verse 25. Now, I don't want you, my brothers, to start imagining things, and I must therefore share with you my knowledge of God's secret plan. It is this, that the partial insensibility which has come to Israel is only to last until the full number of the Gentiles has been called in. Which again takes us back to last week, to dreaming of the glory of when our Jewish friends might actually begin to meet Jesus, of praying for their spiritual interest to be piqued and, and, and really to be piqued by us. That's what we want to see happen. We continue. Once this has happened, all Israel will be saved. As the scripture says, 
There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As far as the gospel goes, they are at present God's enemies, which is to your advantage. But as far as God's purpose in choosing is concerned, they are still beloved for their father's sakes. For once they are made, God does not withdraw his gifts or his calling. Which, by the way, kind of undercuts the frightening language of back in verse 21, which I'm frankly fairly fine with. Because, you see, God's secret is that after calling in all Gentiles that he will call, all Israel will be saved, for they are beloved. And by the way, God doesn't claw back his calling. You have to remember, he is not like men that he should change. In fact, reading this this week, with its seemingly limitless expression of the grace of God, my mind actually went straight back to something really beautiful I read earlier this year. This is from the theologian William Barclay in his book, The Mind of Jesus. You might even want to close your eyes for this. It's so lovely. Listen. What then was Jesus doing in his life and in his death? The answer must be that in his life and in his death, Jesus was demonstrating to men the eternal, unchangeable, unconquerable love of God. He was demonstrating to men that God is the Father who loves undefeatably and whose one desire is that the lost son should come home. When Jesus entered the world, when he healed the sick, comforted the sad, fed the hungry, forgave his enemies, he was saying to men, God loves you like that. When he died upon the cross, he was saying, nothing that men can ever do to God will stop God loving them. There is no limit to the love of God. There is no end beyond which that love will not go. God loves you like that. One thing I know, that because of Jesus Christ and because of what he is and did and does, my whole relationship to God is changed. Because of Jesus Christ, I know that God is my father and friend. Daily and hourly, I experience the fact that I can enter into his presence with confidence and boldness. He is no longer my enemy. There is no longer any unbridgeable gulf between him and me. I am more at home with God than I am with any human being in the human world. And all this is so because of Jesus Christ. And it could not possibly have happened without him. Isn't that a wonderful stretch of writing? I'm going to continue to read. I'm going to be in verse 30 now. Just as in the past you were disobedient to God, but have found that mercy which might have been theirs, but for their disobedience, so they who at the present moment are disobedient will eventually share the mercy which has been extended to you. Or in other words, if mercy is the marker and the measure of this kingdom, friends, let us be profligate in the spreading out of mercy. Let's let mercy be our personal calling card. Let's leave mercy behind as the aroma of our comings and goings. Like if Jesus meant God loves you like that, then we are meant to mean Jesus loves you like this. 
We are the present day models of his mercy so that everyone everywhere gets to get a glimpse of him and through him, the father. We are each of us playing an integral part every day. Let's continue on with Paul. He writes, God has all men penned together in the prison of disobedience that he may have mercy upon them all. Which, by the way, may be one of the most universalist sounding verses in in really the whole New Testament. I mean, almost would make any good Calvinist spiritual skin crawl. But think about it. What are the two poles of the whole who gets to go to heaven question? And I'll tell you, they're even farther apart than Arminianism and Calvinism. Really, if you think about it, the two furthest reaches are divine election, he alone chooses, and then universalism, he chooses everyone. And so, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, no matter how, quote, liberal or conservative theologically you are, I would say, in the spirit of Jesus, can you and I agree on the following? That each of us experiencing right now our calling to follow him should absolutely want everyone in the whole world to know him? Our vision for humanity in him should be growing, never diminishing. Is that fairly fair to say? I mean, can we just at least agree on that no matter what? Well, let's finish out the chapter. This is so good. Paul writes, frankly, I stand amazed at the unfathomable complexity of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. How could man ever understand his reasons for action or explain his methods of working? For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and unto him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. Or actually, friends, let me put it to you this way. The one who is the ground beneath you, the soil from which you spring, is also the one who waters your life from the inside with his own life. He is your foundation, your anchor, your taproot. It is he who makes you strong and steadfast in himself. It is the king of the kingdom who has called you into his kingdom. It is he himself who stepped from the throne to set you free to enter it. His most natural acts are healing, regeneration, and adoption. You have been grafted into himself by himself. And your only jobs, just to remind you, are belief, meaning trusting this one who's done it all, uh, abiding, staying attached no matter what, and then bearing his fruit, enjoying your own fellowship so richly that without a thought, you naturally bring forth his life. Friends, the glorious one, the one of whom, through whom, unto whom are all things, the one who is your recompense, the great giver of your greatest gifts, the counselor, the word of God himself, the one who made all things and by his own perfect understanding continues to hold all things together through his unfathomable complexity and wisdom and knowledge. Well, friends, he now allows you to stand, to live, even to sit at the table with him as part of the kingdom of heaven, whose king is he himself. 
I'll put it to you simply. You are part of this whole wonderful equation. Your life this week will be your reaction to everything I just said and read. Isn't that thrilling? Let's go live out that thrill. Thanks so much for listening.